What is up, everybody? Welcome to Wayward Artists in a Wayward World. I'm Sid, and joining me today is the wonderful Robert Tambari. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm doing very I'm well, doing Sid. Really How well. are you doing? Um, I just record, I pre-recorded another episode uh, of the podcast with my dear friend Nathan Patrick Nelson. Shout out to Nathan. Uh, it's uh, it was about like what an hour ago <laughs> since I spoke with him. So yeah. So oh, wow. <laughs> So the weather is still the same. It's a nice cloudy day. And I appreciate that after the heat that we've been having. Oh, yeah. It just reminds me of like I, I get up every morning and I watch David Fincher's. Uh, is it David Fincher? Yeah, I think he does his uh, his morning weather broadcast mm -hmm. from L.A. in his studio. So I watch that every morning just to be like, oh, yeah, cool. OK, well, this is normalcy now. Oh, so yeah. I know what day it is. Um, <laughs> Yeah. You have a really good laugh. I don't think I've heard you laugh like that much, but like you, like you're, you're you have a very baritone voice. And I like if you knew Robert in person, I like he's, he's a larger than life fellow, I would say. So like that laugh that you have, is just like, I can picture it on you. I know. <laughs> now you're making me laugh even more Just yeah no it's a, it. it's a good laugh it's a good laugh it's definitely a good laugh um i feel like when i laugh like that when uh something you know someone's being ridiculous you know <laughs> and i have to like i i often find myself having to laugh like that anyways because i always find everything to be ridiculous nowadays so it's just you know what oh, more yeah. can you do but laugh in this very yeah, weird world um, it is a wayward world that's for sure yeah catchphrase um robert <laughs> for the uninitiated uh tell us a little about yourself who are you and uh, what do you do Oh, okay. I am an actor here based in Spokane, Washington for the time being. Um, I have traveled the world acting mm -hmm. and teaching. Uh, born and raised here in Spokane. Went to Boise State for my undergrad. Went over to England for my mm -hmm. MFA in acting. Uh, studied the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire. Um, I direct here. I am a vocal and acting coach here in Spokane. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lovely pug, Bentley, who is my mm -hmm. life companion, and she is currently out here with me, sitting <laughs> behind me, staring at me as I'm just talking and uh, wondering why I'm not talking to her. And uh, yeah, I guess <clears throat> I don't really know. Uh, my bio is always short because I like my work. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And like, you know, you being uh, you getting your master's from uh, the United like from England, like that's super dope in my opinion like anyone who studied over there is like ah oh, man you're already like an interesting person to me and uh getting to know you too it's really interesting like how into the united kingdom you are like now every time i see like england anything or uh like yeah england anything i can be like yeah that's robert robert <laughs> well i loved i was in i was right in birmingham so i was right in the mm -hmm. center of the uk so it was great because I was 40 minutes by train to Stratford. So I was always going down to the Royal Shakespeare mm -hmm. Company to see their plays. Um, and I was about an hour and a half by train to London. And so I was often in London. Every I was switching off every other weekend in Stratford in London so I could get on and see plays mm -hmm. whenever I wanted to. Uh, it's definitely one thing I miss about being over there. You know, when you're able to get down and see, it's like here you have to travel four hours by plane to get over to New York to go see shows. Whereas there, it was a quick day trip down mm -hmm. to see the West. What brought End. you back here? Oh, my family. I wanted to move back to Spokane. I needed a year break after grad school because it was just you know sixty hours a week. Mm -hmm. It was a lot. 
Um, so decided I needed to take a year break and took an entire year off from everything mm-hmm. theater related. Uh, and I just liked what was going on in Spokane. It changed a lot mm-hmm. since I moved away um, mm-hmm. 10 years ago now. So it was just nice to come back and get more heavily involved in the theater scene mm-hmm. here in Spokane. Yeah. Um, it's It's been really like in the short time that I've known you, like you've been a really good actor. Like you've been re- phenomenal, actually. Um, we saw, I saw you the first time at auditions for the Book of Will at Spokane Civic Theater. Uh, that that mm-hmm. was a fun time. I didn't yep. really know you, know you at that time. I'm just like, oh, this is a guy that is coming to auditions. That's cool. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people knew me then. That was the first show I actually auditioned for yeah. in Spokane outside of high school well, when I was I in I think yeah, you were like fr- friends with like Bridget Pretz. Uh, fr- yeah, Bridget and I were at a. Oh, were at prep I didn't together. know that. Yeah, Bridget Pretz, mm-hmm. friend of the show. Um, she uh, is a phenomenal person. I got uh, I got to be with her uh, at Gonzaga uh, when I was there. Um, she's a really great actress. Holy moly! Like she is, she is. Oh, I I did, love watching her on stage. I absolutely love. Did you watching see her, her as Mother stage. Courage? I didn't. I wasn't able to see her as much. Yeah, that Courage, was. Uh, I feel like that was her like magnum opus. I remember because uh, I assistant directed that show, and uh, I was talking to her about it, and she was like super. Like of all the people that were excited about Mother Courage, which was just one person really. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why well, it's Brecht? How can you not well, be excited it about was, Mother Courage? It was like you know, it's college and there was a lot of freshmen who probably didn't know mm. what Brecht was, but like Bridget was like super into it. Like she, like, like she, she almost cried. She almost wanted to be like mother courage. And I'm like, you know, um, <laughs> like after auditions and stuff like that. And like, she kept like uh, talking about like how much she wanted it. And, and I couldn't really say anything, but I was like, you know what? The director really liked you and you were really good. <laughs> that- we chatted about the Meryl Streep documentary that they did on Mother Courage before callbacks mm-hmm. for Book of Will um, and how just important that production was at the, uh, uh, what is it they do in a, uh, the theater in the park there in New York and how she was a part of that. And I was like, you should really watch this documentary if you haven't seen it because it's a very good documentary on, on Meryl mm-hmm. Streep in this part. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I remember... Uh in my research of the show, um, seeing the Aunt Petunia production of Mother Courage. I can't remember her name. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, I think in, uh, I think they did this in the UK. Um, it was a found space theater production of Mother Courage in like this warehouse thing that they were doing. And I was like, ah, oh, man, that is so cool that... Was it a found one or did they do it was at the Don Mar? I, I don't know. It didn't look like your traditional space. You know, it... it it probably was. It was. It was probably the Donmar Warehouse. It's not really okay. a traditional. Then space. you probably know about more about this than me. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I just remember it was like a warehouse, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool to put a play in there." Like, I want to put a play in a warehouse, you know, with the Found Space Theater that I love so much. Like, I would love to do something like that, and uh, it gave me a greater appreciation, like working on that as assistant director of like Mother Courage and Brutal Brecht. Uh, because I think at the time, early in my directing career, uh, Charles Pepitone, shout, shout out to Charlie. We always talk about him on the show. Um, he wanted us to choose play about plays about war. And, you know, obviously, Mother Courage, you know, it's mm. it's not not about war, you know. 
Um, no, exactly. But I read it, exactly. and it wasn't like uh, the one that I assistant directed was the Tony Kushner interpretation. Um, the I guess not inter- ad- ad- adaptation. Yeah, yeah. The um, adaptation of it. Yeah. I read a different version of it, and I was like, "Man, I'm I don't know. I don't. I didn't really like the show." <laughs> but I was like, super. I was super ignorant <laughs> at the time. But then I actually read and got to be a part of it, and I was like, "This show's really good. There, this you could do this in so many ways." Yeah, no, it's a great play. I mean, I love Brecht. I mean, I just did uh, the first show I did here in Spokane since being back and back into theater mm-hmm. was uh, Three Penny Opera when I did uh, McKeith in that. So that was, and I, I mean, you know, we did the, uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein mm-hmm. version of it. Um, and it was, well, they own the rights to it. I don't know who, I don't remember who did the translation of it, but it was, uh, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I mean, mm-hmm. I love Brecht. So any chance I get the, any any opportunity to get the chance to do a Brecht play. A Brecht yeah, play, and uh, shout it. out to the Brechtian techniques. You know, like that's my favorite, mm-hmm. like some of my favorite kind of techniques. Um, then the way that we met, um, I saw you in a production of Lonely Planet. Uh, I can't remember who the playwright was, but Lonely Planet, very good play. Stephen Dietz mm-hmm. wrote Lonely it was, Planet. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Probably the best play I saw. Was it this year? Oh. Yeah, we uh, opened it on Valentine's Day of this year and closed it. Why on the does that first play feel like twenty years ago? You know, <laughs> it, I I joke. I I joke because I was on Twitter at the beginning of the pandemic, and one of the people I follow posted about it being Friday every day. And I was like, yeah, every day is Friday today because I don't know what day it is anymody because they yeah, all blended. Because I sincerely thought Lonely Planet was last year sometime. Like in February, <laughs> like it was. It feels that far away. Ah. It does. It really does. Um, but yeah, then I just like met you and Lucas, who was also in the show, and uh, I don't know. We hit it off mm-hmm. so well. We we eventually did. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad as well. I think I think it's because we both have a love for theater that we just can't really, you know. We have great conversations, and it's just one of those things where it's like we can actually discuss mm-hmm. plays, which is nice. Yeah, well, this podcast isn't about discussing, just about this discussing plays, because guys, gals, and non-binary No. Guys, this is Wayward Artists in a Wayward World, where each and every Sunday I sit with a wayward artist, and we talk about the person that they're thankful for. It's based on Jared Petty's podcast, Pockets Full of Soup, or Pocket Full of Soup, whichever, the plural or singular. I still haven't looked that up yet. <laughs> um, we're it's, <laughs> Essentially, it's the same format, and I... Uh, uh, sorry, Jared, but I did steal it. Um, if you want to come on the show, I would love to have you on sometime. Uh, he wasn't really posting this kind of format of show anymore. And so um, I thought it was suitable for the pandemic. So I decided, like, I'm going to make a podcast because really I got nothing else left in this year. So I might as well create something new. <laughs> yeah i love yeah. it um, i love so it robert um i'm gonna ask you the question that i ask each and every guest on the show uh tell me someone you're thankful for i've actually been thinking about that a lot lately uh i journal every day and lately the person that's been coming up is uh was my voice coach at boise state mm-hmm. and price um you know i've had i've had a lot of extremely talented mentors throughout my time but and price really trained me vocally in a way that I, I can never thank Mm -hmm. her enough for Mm -hmm. what she's done. Um, And to me, she is just, uh, she helped shape Mm -hmm. me as an artist. Uh, 
and just understanding just the way she uses exercises and warm-ups just to get you into your own your natural voice i mean she taught me link later in undergrad which was great and um so we went through the whole progression of it and before i was even a senior i was able to do all of link later on my own and then i did it with her again as another progression and so she's always been there she's been a guiding voice for me um and she's just been extremely helpful so Anne price is most definitely the person that i am extremely Anne price definitely for. sounds familiar maybe i heard her name when i was at uh Kenny Center American College Theater Festival. Like, ha does she participate? In she does, yeah. So she's she's taught some workshops at KCACTF. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, she sounds very familiar. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of what uh, you you said was it Boise State University. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know if it was. I I might be thinking of like Idaho's uh, Idaho State University, U of I. Yeah, University oh, of U Idaho. Of I, yeah. But um. Yeah, Boise, like Idaho has a lot of, despite being, I don't know, a very racist and just ugh, bad place, honestly, from what I've heard. Not just, this isn't my opinion, <laughs> like this is from other people that I've heard it from. Like despite like all that, they have some really good theater programs. I know Charlie, uh, I believe he comes from the University of Idaho um, and training there. And I think Courtney Smith, shout out to Courtney, another professor at GU also comes from there. Um, no, they have a lot of, like, Idaho has a lot of good programs. I don't know if I know too much about Boise. So do you want to talk about, like, what exactly Anne has done for you in the uh, the time you were in her tutelage? Uh, so the best thing about Anne is that when we started, when we, when I, when you started Boise State, they try to pair the acting classes with the voice classes. And so while you're working with um, another one of my tutors and mentors, mm -hmm. Gordon Reinhardt, um, he helped me a lot with Shakespeare uh, down there. And, um, so from the beginning and the get-go of your training, you're immediately focusing on not just you and your acting techniques, but how you, as an actor, your whole body mm -hmm. is your tool. And so from the get-go, right away, you're focusing on vocal work. And to me, that's, it's extremely important to have vocal work and being vocally trained as an actor. I mean, I, I've always said that you should be able to fill a space just by projecting and using your voice. If they have to put a mic on you, so be it. But if you can do it on your own, it makes it far easier for the sound mixer and the sound designer to then work with a show. And so she was able to really, and I used to have very bad vocal habits. I mean, extremely, I mean, I, I have recordings of me somewhere on one of my hard drives that's when I first, before I even started taking vocal classes with her and I just listened to it I'm like, oh, wow okay robert that is a very mm -hmm. horrible sound you're making uh <laughs> and now i can listen to myself and be like well my voice is somewhat tolerable i enjoy it now i mean i hate listening to myself as it is um even watching myself on stage i can't watch myself mm -hmm. perform. why do you think that is i'm very curious because i feel like um i have a lot to say about that um from my perspective anyway like why do you think you don't like listening to your own voice or seeing yourself perform on stage I don't not enjoy it. I mean, I've gone back and watched performances and been like, ah, here's where I could do this better. Here's where I should have maybe changed that a little so it could have played better to the audience. So from, you know, an educational point and learning to better myself as an actor, it's important to go back and watch it. But then going back and watching my performances, I just, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, but I should have done that better, but I should have done this part better. It, it, so it's, I'm, I'm an extremely critical self-evaluator. And so for me to be able to 
sit down with an open mind and actually watch myself perform Mm -hmm. is difficult for me. And it's okay. It's, you know, it's not a bad thing. I think actors inherently are more Mm self-critical of themselves. Um, But I just have, I, my, my feeling on theater is that Mm -hmm. it's, it's in the moment. And so you can record it all you want. You can record performances and you can rewatch them, but really truly is Mm -hmm. you need the audience there you need the audience to be a part of you and to be a part of your performance. And so you can go back and watch it, but you're missing the actual mm-hmm. live aspect of it, which is yeah. what I love. Yeah. I, uh, I feel you on that. I think my issue with like watching myself, um, we did a lot of acting for the camera things and I just don't like my appearance sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, ugh, I look like a blob. And then like when uh, they, t- when they do it, like when they do the shots of you from the back and you're like, that's what people look at all the time, my back. And that's what I look like back there. Ew. Which it's, yeah. Backting. Oh, yeah. Backing. <laughs> well, yeah. it's like not just backing. It's like <laughs> I take a picture, like, you know, I, I look good in like a, a shirt or pants and I want to take a picture in the dressing room. And usually they have the, uh, the back mirror so you can look at yourself in the back. And then I'm like, Ugh, that's what I look like. I, I my front presentation is like, oh wow, I look great. But then I look in the back, and I'm just like, this is awful. Why are people look? Why do I look like that? <laughs> but like, it's in retrospect, it's uh, it's such a dumb thing to think about because like, you know, that's you shouldn't be thinking about yourself that way, you know. And with regards to voice, I think it, it plays into two factors. One, I'm deaf in my left ear. So I've always had my right ear to rely on things. So uh, rely on hearing and stuff like that. So I always felt like my voice was always in a whisper before I got into theater. Um, I wasn't using my diaphragm and whatever I thought was like loud sounded loud to me, but it wasn't really loud to like the average hearing person. And then also the other thing is like, I'm gay, but like I also had a lot of internalized. Well, I I say I'm gay. I'm more queer, honestly, but um, I have a lot of internalized homophobia when I was a kid. And so whenever I heard my voice, it always sounded like a woman, you know, or like flamboyant, you know, Oh my God, you know, I'm so gay. Oh, you know, it reminds me of that documentary. Um, uh, I think it's on Netflix. The, uh, is it, yeah. does my voice sound gay? I think that's the, yeah, that documentary on it. And that's an interesting documentary as well. Just inherently having to do with vocal work. Cause a lot of those actors that are a part of it are mm-hmm. vocal actors our voice actors. And it's just, I, I have the same thing as you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm gay. And so for me, it's like, I just, you know, I, it, it's taken me, I don't even know if I still come to terms with it. And it's not, it's mm-hmm. a lifelong thing, but it's, it's one of the things where it's like, you learn to become more comfortable with yourself mm-hmm. as you do more art. And I think it's the art that's really made me more comfortable with myself. I mean, I always used to say that my, my performances and my acting was uh, an escape for me to escape reality of real life. But now I'm realizing more and more that actually what I'm doing on stage is being a more real mm-hmm. version of myself. Once I felt more confident in my art, um, I was able to look at myself like in pictures and like, like clips a lot more confidently. Um, the podcast among all the things that this podcast has helped uh with this pandemic and everything like i i have to listen to my voice to like edit stuff out and uh you know i've gotten used to it you know like i i think at first i was kind of like trepidatious because i was like oh, i gotta listen to my voice and it sucks but then like once you listen to that two three four more times you're like oh this is this is what i sound like you know that's that's okay you know that 
it's weird like that. And you mentioned Linklater and Anne Price like teaching you that. Like Charles Pepitone, like Charlie, uh, also uses a lot of Linklater techniques with the diaphragm and stuff like that and uh, voice warm ups. And so I adapted that a lot and I learned a lot from him about voice work. And so once I was able to access my diaphragm, I started to sound different when I talk. Like I, I was quiet for the longest time in Saudi Arabia because I didn't know, well, I didn't know Arabic that, that for a while. That, that was one thing. But I was, also very, I was also very quiet. People couldn't really hear what I was saying. But now when I project, I project, you know, like, oh, man, like probably like outside the theater, people would be able to hear me. And I'm like, dang, I didn't know I had this. It was like all in there. Uh, that, that's a thing I always get. It's like, oh, yeah, Robert, we know you're coming because we can mm -hmm. hear you from a mile away. <laughs> like yes yes i i often project yeah I don't even that's what to. i try to do now i uh sometimes when i'm when i start to be aware of that like i try to like do my like talk from the diaphragm uh a lot more like when, whenever i'm aware of it like if i feel tension in my neck i'm like oh man you're, you're speaking from your throat right now you want to you got to try uh, talking with your from your diaphragm because like it's putting strain on your throat uh well, not even that. It's like you, you learn, like, uh, as you go through Linklater more and more, you learn that, you know, the best way to, like, get rid of tension in your throat mm -hmm. is to yeah. just yawn. A yawning is what, you know, re releases the tension in your throat. And so just yawning in general, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, the yeah. throat is relaxing. And maybe more. if you stop clenching your jaws all the time when you're anxious. <laughs> yeah, if you stop clenching your jaw, yeah. you anxiety. Oh, yeah, yeah I, anxiety. I, I don't feel like I do that too often, but... um Whenever I do, I notice it, and I'm like, "Oh, I gotta stop that." <laughs> I do. I, I know I do. I, I'm I'm horrible about it. It's like I have to do. Um, I do a vocal warm up mm -hmm. every morning when I get up, and then you know I'll do. Uh, and then before I go in and I perform on stage, I've got another one that I do. That's like uh, I do like 30 minutes at home, just getting prepared, and then I do a 45 minute warm up at the theater, and it's just mm -hmm. it just centers me. Like my vocal warm up every day just centers me, so I feel ready to mm -hmm. take on the day. Oh yeah, um, I feel like I need to do more of that. <laughs> um, going back to Anne, um, does Anne work uh, at Gonzaga, or am I thinking of someone else? I don't. I think you're thinking of someone else. Anne is still down in Boise. She works uh, a lot with uh, Boise okay. Contemporary Theater, um, uh, Idaho Shakespeare mm -hmm. Festival, and. Um, I think she's mm -hmm. done some work in Lake Tahoe, uh, uh, okay. at Great Lakes, and she used to teach at Michigan State, mm -hmm. I believe. And I'm sorry if you're listening. If I get the university used to teach at wrong, um, I don't remember. But she used to teach back in Michigan, and then from Michigan mm -hmm. she moved to Boise State. Um, but she does, and oh, she also works up at Company of Fools in uh, mm -hmm. Sun Valley, yeah. Idaho. Yeah. Um, but she does. She's she's a very I mean, I would think a lot of people, I know a lot of people here that I've worked with in Spokane do know her or know of her. She's a very good vocal coach okay. on the well, West Coast. Well, yeah, I think I brought up Gonzaga because I was trying to find her profile on Facebook and it said Gonzaga and I was like, huh. Then I asked you and then you said, no, I think she works in Boise State. So I look her up and Price. I well, I know yeah, she's. And Price Gonzaga. I know she mm -hmm. teaches at Boise State now. What is, did she, I mean, she, I, I'm sure mm -hmm. she was up here for. Um, cause I know when GU hosted KCACTF, I'm sure she was yeah, well, here's, at that. 
here's the thing and uh, the uh, the uh the piece of the puzzle that's missing here and price is a different person <laughs> like uh it's a different kind of Anne Price that works at Gonzaga. She's the budget and personnel officer for the Center ah. of Global Engagement. So her name is also <laughs> Anne Price. So I just thought, uh, all right, well, wrong person, I guess. <laughs> um, so what else does she teach? I mean, like, the, does, is her primary a uh, primary uh, uh, discipline just vocal uh, vocal acting, or does she do what else does she do? When I was at Boise State, she just taught voice. I believe she also taught a couple intro mm-hmm. to theater classes, um, but she really just primarily focused mm-hmm. on voice while I was there. Um, I mean, she taught me, the last class I took with her was uh, dialects. And so we went through and we did a whole bunch of different dialects. And then the final for the class was creating, um, uh, she, would, she gave us characters, like cartoon characters, and we had to create mm-hmm. voices for them. And that's and then we we recorded those and that was our final for the class. So I mean, I primarily had her for voice. She also directed me in a um, in uh, Albert Camus. Oh, uh, what is it? Is it the uh, what is it? Uh, I can't remember the name of the play. Um, the mm-hmm. Misunderstanding. I've never. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Maybe show. that's it. Uh, my junior year, I believe, we hosted the Camus Colloquium at, uh, at Boise State. And so we put on, uh, and I think it is the misunderstanding. It's like a retelling of the prodigal mm-hmm. son, but everything goes wrong. Um, and uh, yeah, she directed me in that. But, and she directs it. She directs, I think she's directing a show. I think she's directing oh. a Christmas Carol, actually, oh. at Boise State this year. Um, but yeah, I just, I primarily mm-hmm. had her for vocal. Interesting. So what how does vocal like vocal like in an academic setting like how many vocal classes are you taking with Anne? because like i guess like this is my stereotypical like uh understanding of like the the art of you know vocal acting like i i would just assume it's like one class and it's one and done you know like uh, are you is she teaching multiple different kinds of uh voice classes over at boise state yeah so i did a um so the, the progression that I did was voice one mm-hmm. and voice two, and then the voice three was uh, optional. So if you were the performance route, what I was, you had to take voice one and voice two, and then the voice three was dialects. So there's really three vocal uh, vocal sessions that she teaches, mm-hmm. and they're a semester long each. Um, and I know people who've taken them multiple times. I mean, I was going to take it my last semester at Boise State just to get a revamp mm-hmm. of Linklater again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just didn't have time. That's really interesting. I didn't even know you can get that deep. <laughs> when uh, Charlie uh, did his link later, like it was more, um, he's either directing a show or it's part of like acting two or even directing. Like he would make us do warm ups and stuff like that. Like uh, link later warm ups, um, and that was like my only introduction to it. I didn't know it like extended that deep. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in grad school, um, for the two years I was over in grad school, of the, I don't remember, were we terms? Or I think we were terms. Um, so for the for the six terms that I had over there, I had voice. I had multiple voice mm-hmm. classes every did it week. Th- thro- did it, like, throw you off guard like, with how many, like, voice classes that you had? 
No, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I love vocal classes. I love them. Um, I just think mm-hmm. that they're so important. They're so important for actors to have. If you have, if you have control of your, if you have a, an understanding and how to control your voice, I think there's so much mm-hmm. more you can do in theater and even acting in general. Um, and it, 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 it translates to all, I mean, it translates, uh, when I direct, I focus heavily on, uh, on making sure people can be heard and that people can hear you. And so the only way I really know how to do that is, you know, to get people to access their diaphragm and to, uh, to get people to realize that, hey, your voice matters. And I think that's the best thing you learn in vocal training, mm-hmm. is that your voice matters. And so when you learn that, you're not afraid to speak anymore. And I think that's, it's so important as an actor to know that, that your voice does matter. And people are coming to see you and hear you on the stage. So they want to hear you. So you need to be better about, you know, keeping your voice healthy. Mm-hmm. Keeping yourself that's an healthy. interesting philosophical way of looking at that. Because, you know, you say like your voice matters, like in the context, like physically, like, um, yeah, your voice matters. People want to hear what you're saying on stage so they can hear the words. But also your voice matters, like you as a person have opinions and thoughts and feelings and they matter to other people, you know, like, well, maybe not everybody, you know, people will probably not agree with a lot of the choices that we make, but, you know, to the people that do, like, you deserve to have that voice heard. No, exactly. And I think it's, it's, that's the one, you know, of all the classes I took and all of the classes I've taken, what's made me a stronger individual is understanding that, you know, through my vocal work, I've learned that I can speak and that mm-hmm. I have the right to be heard. And that's what I try to get across when I work with people on voice is that, look, you have the right to be heard. And all I'm doing is helping facilitate mm-hmm. your learning of how to speak and how to speak properly mm-hmm. without hurting yourself. Yeah. Um, I remember, I'm not really sure if, it was me who was directing. I think, yeah, I think I was doing something like a scene or whatever. And an actress was kind of screaming, you know, like actually screaming. And uh, I told her, oh, hold on one second. I'm hearing my own voice. Oh, wait, no, it's gone. It's gone. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was like trying to scream really loud. And oh, yeah, it was not a show I was directing. It was a show that was Char- Charlie was directing. And I think, like, she was actually, like, kind of hurting her voice. I think I told her to, like, access her diaphragm. You should try, like, screaming with your diaphragm. I could be wrong. I I remember having this conversation with somebody and them being like, uh, that won't work for the type of scream that I want to do. But even then, I was like, I'm sure you're able to achieve that without hurting yourself, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, shouting on stage, shouting just in general, if you're – if you're not accessing your diaphragm, you definitely will hurt your vocal folds because they won't, it just, it, it's weird because we don't think about that. I mean, we, we think about, um, you know, a lot of the training you do vocally, it's like, just remember when you were a kid and remember how you're just able to like, you can just scream and shout mm-hmm. and you would never be tired. You would never, and it's because kids, when you're, you're a kid, you're, you're, you're trained mm-hmm. to not be loud. And so what you learn through vocal training is that on stage, you need to be loud. You need to be heard. But you also learn to incorporate that into your everyday life. So breathing from your diaphragm. um, I mean, my favorite thing to do 
is uh, when I'm working with someone is mm-hmm. to get them to just run around, just get them so that you interrupt their actual normal mm-hmm. breathing pattern that they have. And then it makes them focus on, oh, okay, my body is telling me that I need to get more air in, more breath. And so it's making you mm-hmm. breathe into your diaphragm. And so it's like, okay, now isolate that and just think about mm-hmm. where the breath is going. And so from in and out, when you're breathing, you're able to be like, ah, yes, okay, this is how I should be breathing on stage. And that's one of the first things I try to get people to do is just to learn like, okay, don't breathe in just to your chest. Mm-hmm. That's not where you want to breathe because you're not going to be able to project or anything. You really have, I mean, your emotional center is in your diaphragm. Everything comes, breath is the, your breath is the focal point of everything you do as, act, mm-hmm. as an actor or an artist. And the only way to access that is to really truly access mm-hmm. your diaphragm and your breathing. Yeah. I liked what you were saying. Cause that was exactly what um, Charlie told us too. like babies when they're little, like they, they're able to like cry and cry and yeah. And they cry very loud for such a, a small, a small thing. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Uh, like they access yeah. their diaphragm and like the joke <laughs> I like to make about that is like, I guess like the stress and strain in the world, like they just, you know, they, they lose it. They, yeah. Like, it's like you said, um, they're trained to be quiet. You know, it's also, uh, we live in a world that really doesn't like to be loud. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, it I will counteract that for as someone from Saudi Arabia, um, who has seen Americans talk and them being, extremely loud <laughs> in public like i remember yeah i remember and i will mm-hmm. i will agree with that mm-hmm. i will agree with that entirely. um i remember sitting in a restaurant with uh, my dad and my brother and my dad's friend we were just like you know chilling um i believe it was the day before his uh he married my uh former stepmom they they divorced <laughs> um and it's seeing an American guy, and it was the most stereotypical American guy you ever imagined. Big guy, red as a, a tomato, yelling, uh, well, your English is pretty good, Ahmed, or as, as long as you don't smoke too much, you know? It's something like that's that's how loud, you know? Um, I don't know what else he said, but like it was so funny. And, you know, Saudis are loud too because um, we talk with our hands, we're like Italians. You know, um, but also we're very intense, like um, for an American to see Arabs talk, I feel like uh, they would assume that we are fighting, you know, <laughs> like there, there's like something going on. It's like, oh, no, we're just having conversation. It's fine. <laughs> it's it's interesting how voice works in different cultures. Well, no, and when I was living over in the UK, um, I could pick out an American mm-hmm. when I was in, in any pub I was in. If I was in there, I'd be like, I could, I could just single them out because it was, you know, the one thing that I was taught is that when you're doing a British accent, a lot of the time, especially when you're work, focusing on RP, received pronunciation, um, which is a taught way to speak. Uh, British people go up in pitch more than they actually go up in, mm-hmm. uh, and they go up in inflection. Whereas Americans just get louder mm-hmm. to get their point across. That's and it is, it's really interesting to hear about it and just to like actually sit down and like watch interviews with people. It's like, oh yeah, Americans, we mm-hmm. do get louder when we're trying to get our point across. And it's not like we're trying to be angry or shouting. It's like, we just mm-hmm. naturally get louder. 
probably because I think it comes from, again, when you're a child, it's like you're told to, you know, not shout, not do these different things. And so the only way you're ever really heard as a kid mm -hmm. is to exactly. be Exactly. Um, you brought up a, a really cool story that I was thinking about. Then we'll go back to Anne for a little bit. But um, I was a kid and there was a, uh, we had a transfer flight. So we had to stay in the the UK, I think, no, not UK. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very bad at geology. The London airport. Yeah. What did I say? <laughs> geology. You, you know, said geology. <laughs> I, I recorded. I recorded an episode beforehand. I need to stop doing these back-to-back -back ones because I get exhausted. Um, no, I love it. It's just like it's just. It's just yeah. Family. So words, I remember words, as a kid words. being in the London airport and thinking to myself. I think I was like six at the time. I was like, you know, I gotta like blend in with the locals, and so I would have a British like I would put on like my worst British accent. Uh, and whenever I went to stores and to like buy things and I, I cringe now, <laughs> but it was like, I don't know. It was a fun memory. I'm like the London airport was beautiful. Like I remember even. Yeah. Oh, I love Heathrow. I don't know if it was Heathrow. I, Heathrow. I, I just said London because it could. Or you could have been, oh, it could have been Gatwick. You have Heathrow and Gatwick. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell London. you because I was like six. I just like, oh, we're in London now. This is nice. You know? Um, but yeah, I just remember doing that. And I don't know. It was a fun story. Anyway, because um, like you said, Americans <laughs> and stuff. Like I, I can imagine. Like, ha has there ever been an American, like an actual adult American, who tried to put on a British accent, like in a pub or something like that? The uh, to your knowledge, anyway. Um, I mean, we mm -hmm. used to do it in grad mm -hmm. school for fun. Um, and we could, I mean, you know, we were really, mm -hmm. we were very well trained. And so we were able to pass off as English when we were able to do it sometimes. I mean, some people, we, you know, we'd miss little notes in different ways to pronounce words. And so it'd be like, oh, okay, clearly you're not, uh, you're not really British, but I, I didn't hear, and I didn't see anybody when they were just visiting, trying to put on a British, I mean, my, my niece did when, when they came over uh. to me at Christmas in London, but you know, she was, I think she was. Or is she 10 now? So I think she was uh, <laughs> eight at the I mean, time. Same deal. So, uh, like she got it. She just wanted to blend in with the locals. She did, and she loves Peppa Pig. So that's how oh. she that's where it comes from for her. Peppa, Peppa so. Pig. <laughs> um <laughs> going going back to Anne, um, what else did you learn from her? Like besides vocal stuff? It seemed like uh you really got in depth with the vocal. Um do, have you guys collaborated after college or did she, do you guys still keep in touch? We keep in touch occasionally. I haven't messaged her in a while just because I've been, you know, busy here in Spokane and different things. And I wasn't able to meet her, uh, catch up with her the, the last time I was down in Boise. But, um, you know, I remember she was just a great mentor all around for me. I remember going into class one day and I was late a couple times in a row and she pulled me outside of the studio and the Danny Peterson. She goes, Robert, Robert, you're so talented. You mm -hmm. need to be better. You just need to be better about keeping your time. She goes, it's not, she goes, it's not okay. You're wasting other people's time. You need to be on time. You can't be late. You need to know your work mm -hmm. when you come in and be ready to go. Um, and that was really driven home to me when she directed me in the misunderstanding because it was, and even just mm -hmm. being word perfect in plays. It's something that I strive for in every performance I do. I try to be word perfect because the playwright wrote mm -hmm. these words in this way for this reason. And so 
I think it's important and that I learned that from her where it's like, no, you don't get to just mess around. You don't just get to, you know, say whatever you want to say on stage. You know, if you, if you go up on your lines, that's something different. But if you don't learn your lines and you don't really try to learn your lines, she was after me on that. I mean, it wasn't even like, you know, I remember getting line notes at the end of rehearsal and it wasn't even like, big mistakes it was like you added an and in here or you added an or mm-hmm. or you paused too long um and so she was very much she she didn't just train me vocally she trained me nice. how to be a better teacher. um i when you mentioned like how she pulled you aside like that like i feel like that's much more worse than an, an actual teacher like yelling at you because like because like this is someone oh yeah <clears throat> that you look up to and they're literally telling you that they're disappointed in you in this moment and i'm like oh my god this this actually hurts because <laughs> like I... oh yeah i remember i remember being late to a dialects class one time and her rule was you can be late but if you're more than 15 minutes late um and i was just having issues finding a parking spot so i knew this was going to happen but i was more than 15 minutes late and um her rule was in the class you can participate in the group work but you cannot do the solo work when I call on you to speak. So I was sitting in the middle of the group. And when it came to my turn, she just passed over me and went to the person to my left. And I was like, yep. Okay. I was 15. I was more than 15 minutes late to class of a three hour class. So it was like, yep. You, uh, you don't get to do any of the solo work. I I don't think I was ever late for Charlie's class, at least not too late or even like kathleen kathleen here's the thing about kathleen jeff shout out to kathleen we talk about her all the time she is so forgiving and i love her so much because i think i was late a few times and she never really like uh, expressed that you would already feel disappointed because kathleen is so sweet and so lovely you're like oh man i disrupted something but like she's not gonna like tell me on it but like she's not gonna call my like bullshit on it but at the same time you feel bad because she's so nice. And <laughs> when I, I had a se- I, I was able to teach a couple sections of play analysis my last year, mm-hmm. my last semester at Boise state. Um, and the rule that I had was, cause it was only an hour and 15 minute long class. So if you were late for me, it was like, you know, and it wasn't, it was, mm-hmm. it was it like one in the afternoon or maybe it was at one in the afternoon. No, that's one of my acting class was, it was like 10 30 in the morning. So 10 30 to 11 45 is when we had this class. And if you were more than 15 minutes late to my class, I was like, you know, you can be here. But I did the same thing that Ann did to me. I was like, I'm, 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 you can participate in the group work, but you know, mm-hmm. you've wasted everybody's time. You know, we waited, we didn't wait for you. We kept going and you came in and you wanted to share your ideas. You can, you can share your ideas when it comes to that point. But really, truly, if you aren't, it, it, it's respect to me. It, it comes down to a respect thing. You know, the last play I did in grad school was uh, Harvey mm-hmm. Granville Barker's Waste. Um, and Lynn Farley was the director of it. And the first day of rehearsal, we didn't do a read through the play. Mm-hmm. We jumped immediately into table work. And about Ooh. half of my cohort was late. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my cohort was great with time management. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so the first she we were all sitting there waiting. And she got up, mm-hmm. she poured herself a cup of tea, and then she sat back down and she said, to be early is to be on time, to be on time is to be late, and to be late <laughs> is unacceptable. Oh my goodness. I 
I know that phrase, man. Like uh, a person we don't talk about on the show, like Suzanne Ostersmith. Shout out to Suzanne. Um, that's kind of like she made us recite that whenever we got late or, or something like early is on time, on time is late, and late is unacceptable. And then one day Suzanne was late, <laughs> and it and and we all <laughs> recited it to her, and she she had to like stand there. <laughs> Yeah, I, so I'm very familiar with that phrase. And Charlie, like, um, in comparison to Kathleen, like, he's very much like, you need to be on time for things. Um, again, I don't remember, like, being scolded for it. Um, I was scolded by other teachers whenever I wasted their time. Um, another funny story that, you know, since we're talking about teachers, um, I was in a Catholicism class. And we had, this is a different Charlie, by the way, my, my dog, my wire hair dachshund. He was still a, a little uh, a little puppy. <laughs> so I put him in a bag and I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring Charlie uh, to school today. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Oh, my God. Um, first, he starts poking his head out during class and he starts crying. And then eventually he finds a way to poke his head out into the out of the bag. And people are seeing this and the dog keeps like then he starts like really crying and screaming because and, and like howling a little bit so what i what i ended up doing was <laughs> i picked up the dog and i left i took him back home like i sk- i had to skip class because i brought my dog into class and then i went to the uh the professor for the catholicism class and thank god he's a priest you know like so i'm like you know he can't be angry at me <laughs> because if i <laughs> Because if I, all I have to do is apologize and my sins are forgiven, you know? And that's exactly what happened. I just apologized to him and everything was okay. But what I learned later from that was um, I was on a confessional, like not a conf- like one of those weird uh, social media things that like students do where, oh, I saw so-and-so do this and yeah. stuff like that. And I, I just happened upon one of them and someone t- literally talked about me and my dog. Uh and I and I guess like it ruined their day or something. I was like, I'm I'm sorry that a puppy ruined your day, like a surprise dog, you know. I used to bring oh, Bentley man. to class with me in undergrad all the time. I can't bring any of my dogs all to the anything. Time. They're crazy, you know. She would mm-hmm. she would attend the class that I taught. Um, she would, uh, and right after that was my. Uh, advanced acting class with mm-hmm. Richard Clouch, the head of the department down there. And he would, he would be like, where's Bentley? And I was like, well, I brought her home. He goes, no, 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 keep her here. I want her in class. Um, and then when she started coming and when I was doing dialects at the time, she goes, why don't you bring <laughs> Bentley to my class, Robert? And so, so I started having to bring Bentley to Anne's class. Yeah. So that she Charlie, that uh, you know, we tried. <laughs> I almost put Charlie in a show. I almost put him in Doxy's God uh, and just being like, cause at the end, one of the characters has a line and cause I guess like the ending is like, oh man, uh, we're all coming full circle. Like I thought, oh man, Charlie can be Snoopy and uh, we can have one of the characters bring him on set. Um, uh, no, he, he's too crazy. He's too wild, too energetic, especially as a puppy too. So we decided against that, but it did inspire me to do like a creative choice with the, uh, the dog house, making it the uh, piano stand as well. So so I was like, oh, if I didn't really think cool. about this dog, maybe this wouldn't have happened. We would have had a different set piece. So, because Kathleen was there, and uh, she was like, uh, I was like, man, I really want my dog in this show. 
and I can't have him because it's not going to work. And then she was like, but why do you like, why do you think it's important to have the dog there? And that's where the, that's how I got in, that idea. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> Anne, um, what, what's her influence been like to you once you got your master's? Like what, what did, did you, uh, did you have a different perspective of her once you got your master's? Like what was uh, graduating school? I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like what was graduating from your school in Boise uh, like compared to going to get your master's? Like, what do you think, what were the lessons learned there? You know, I was, I was fortunate that I did as much vocal work in undergrad as I did because mm -hmm. when I went to grad school, a lot of my cohort had never done any vocal mm -hmm. work, had never done any link later. And so going into grad school, I was already oh, wow. ahead of the game. And, and so, and I messaged Anna and I, I praised her and I thanked her. I was like, I can't thank you enough because if I'd just been exposed to Linklater, uh, when I got to grad school, I was like, I feel like I would have missed out on mm -hmm. so much in my undergrad. And so just having that ability to even, I mean, I don't know a lot of undergrads mm -hmm. that teach vocal work. Yeah which is a shame because it, it really is like, you know, your vocal mm -hmm. work is important to you. As an actor. Yeah. So just even, even having that ability to be like, yeah, you've already done the entire link later progression mm -hmm. before you've even wow. gotten to grad That's school. crazy. I mean, like I've had that same uh, epiphany before, um, <clears throat> even just applying to school, uh, Leslie Stimulus, another professor we talk about on the show. Um, she introduced me to Erda schools and yeah. Oh yeah, yeah and I, oh, yeah, I think Erda is really cool. At least the way she's like insisted that we apply to an Erda school, and so um, like, and then learning about like going to ACTF, and then them like learning about the college path, like the master's path. Like I took like a, a workshop, and not a lot of students there knew as much about masters as the way that I was being taught at, at Gonzaga. At least like you know, going to school like after uh your bachelors and so i was really grateful for that i was also grateful for everything i learned from kathleen and charlie too because like the traveling theater company for wayward artists wouldn't be a thing like and me doing my own thing like i probably would have just been one of those people who was just sitting around waiting for the next opportunity which in all honesty i feel like that's that's now <laughs> uh, with i remember I remember coming back from grad school auditions and I was, you know, I didn't, I, I got callbacks to the satellite schools, but I didn't really mm -hmm. get any callbacks to the main Erda's schools. Um, and I remember Anne sitting me down in her office and I was, I was pretty upset. And she goes, she looked at me and she goes, Robert, mm -hmm. you're a very talented artist. She goes, just because you don't get into a grad school mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're not talented. It just means they're mm -hmm. not looking for your type right now. And that really struck me. And it, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, actors, we deal with rejection as a mm -hmm. daily given for our jobs. And most of the time mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with us. And once you learn that your freedom to audition and perform just mm -hmm. skyrockets. And, 
you know, that was six years ago that I learned that from her. And it really, it took her sitting me down and being like, yeah, you're talented. You're good. And that, and not getting into a grad school, even if you don't, is not going to stop you from being how yeah, talented I, you are. I was talking with Nathan about this actually, like um, about figuring out a re the reason, the real reason why you want to do what you want to do. Cause like, yeah, we face all this rejection and stuff and it can be like exhausting you know, and even upsetting to an extent, but like, as long as you know why you do what you want to do, like, that's going to like carry you through so much, like of this like agony, and then we'll make like all the failure kind of worth it in a sense, like, you know. Exactly. It's like, you can't even treat like not getting cast in a show or not getting the part you want as like a, a commentary on you as an artist, because again, realistically, most of the mm -hmm. time it has nothing to do with you. Has absolutely nothing to do with you when you when you go into a room casting directors and directors mm -hmm. want you to succeed and a lot of the times you can have a brilliant audition mm -hmm. you just don't fit the part and when you learn that when you when you finally accept that fact that i mean more often than not i have not been cast in shows than the ones i've auditioned for and that i've been cast in and that's just inherently a part of the job that's what you do as an artist. You audition mm -hmm. for shows, some you get in, some you don't. And when you learn that it really mm -hmm. has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with the fact that an, a director and a casting director have, you know, this type of person in mind for the role, you realize that, oh, yeah, I can still do this. I can keep doing this. And it's just, you have to have a drive to keep wanting to do it. I mean, that's the big reason I went into grad school was, you know, I knew I needed to mm -hmm. continue my training. And, you know, I could have moved to LA. I could have moved to New York right after grad, right after undergrad. And I could have, you know, been a professional and working actor. But I wanted to go and continue my training because I mm -hmm. felt there was more I should learn. Um. And just doing that, I mean, you know, in grad school, it's not, you know, you make leaps and bounds when you're an undergrad. You really do. Like, you you see such exponential growth when you're an undergrad. But when I was in grad school, uh, we had this thing called the workbook where we had to, uh, at, the, at the end of our first year, it was basically like a, a, a journal or a diary. Um, and I went back and I read it and I realized that I grew a lot as an artist but it was just small, tiny little tweaks. It wasn't, you know, I mean, the tiny little tweaks were massive to me. But at the same time, it was like, ah, you learned that you can't compare yourself to others. You mm -hmm. need to focus on your journey alone. Not alone is like, but you need to focus on your growth. You can't compare yourself to other artists in the field because mm -hmm. people are all on their own journey. And where you are is not where someone else is. Exactly. And it starts, I feel like it probably starts with the voice, really. And like that, uh, it, that self-consciousness of like being like, oh man, my voice doesn't really sound like uh, how I wanted it or even like appearance too. But uh, voice is, um, you can tell a lot of, about a person when the way they talk to other people um, or just normally, not like inflection or anything like that. It's just like, you know, people are sometimes like some people I know are like super quiet and they maybe they are not comfortable hearing like not only hearing their own voice, but like to interact with other people or there's people who talk really fast and want to get to like the next thing. And like you can learn so much from about somebody just from the way they talk to you.
in just a n- normal setting. And no, exactly. I mean, I remember in, in one of my first vocal classes in uh, in grad school. It was a voice and speech class. So I had I had a Linklater class with Francoise Wallo. She was she was the Linklater um, professor tutor at RBC, and Simon, her partner, was my voice and speech tutor. And I remember him pulling me aside in class and he goes, why are you so quiet, Robert? And I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to interrupt what other people are doing when they're warming up. And he goes, no, he said, don't be quiet because of them. He goes, you, he goes, you being loud and using your full voice is going to help others Mm -hmm. learn that they can do that too. And so even just learning just in a basic warm up, you know, obviously support, your voice, support your breath, but don't be afraid mm-hmm. to be loud. It's, that's amazing. Like that, like, I guess you just don't really put it into perspective, like how philosophical voice training is. Like you just think like it's voice, like, ah, diaphragm and dialect and all that fun stuff. But like just the way he, he, your mentor was like, just talking, you know, like just take the voice out of it, you know, like the actual physical, like, oh yeah, be loud or whatever. Like, the, the philosophical preaching behind it, like that's like esteem, self-esteem and stuff. It really was. And, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I was, I was extremely fortunate that I got to work with mm-hmm. Kristen Linklater before she passed away. Um, and she said the exact same thing in the masterclass that I took with her. It was very much like, don't be afraid to use your voice. I will correct you if you're wrong and if you're not supporting. But she goes, use your voice. Use it. She goes, it's the only tool you have as an actor that you can control. Really? Your body is the only thing you can control. And your voice is the main Mm -hmm. thing as an actor that you need. Mm -hmm. She goes, don't be afraid to use it. 100%. You know, in uh, literally and uh, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) Um, it reminds me of, uh, yeah, again, I talk, I I feel like I'm repetitious in a lot of episodes, but, you know, depending on which episode you land on, um, (laughs) we talk about the the playwright form that I was doing, too. And that the whole mission behind that was these young artists, not only nurturing them for like the future generation of theater artists, but it's also nurturing their artistic voice, you know? And it's everything that you just said is stuff that I said in my proposal um, being talked about in like a a metaphorical and spiritual kind of way, rather than just like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm literally teaching them how to control their voice, which I would have, you know, I, uh, I still know some of Charlie's old trainings and I still use them uh, in my rehearsals. I mean, I I remember the first um... I did it multiple times, but the first, you know, the first lesson you do with Linklater is you get a, uh, you just get a, a piece of paper and you draw yourself. And then it's, where do you see your voice? Like draw a picture of what your voice is to you. And you learn to realize that mm-hmm. your voice is a very personal thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's really who you are. And if you're afraid of accessing it and using it, you're limiting yourself in a way. I mean, I remember uh, I, I cried all the time 
in grad school. And, and I'm not ashamed to say that because it really was one of those things where it's like, I would have a breakthrough and I'd just be weeping because I'd realize it's like, Oh my God, I'm mm-hmm. understanding this more and more. Um, and I'm learning that it really is just your voice is you mm-hmm. and you shouldn't be afraid to use it. Yeah. I've had those epiphanies. You know, I, I even told Charlie, I, like, um, I remember, like I was talking with Nathan about it too, just today. Um, like how I wasn't really taking his class too seriously because I didn't really know what I wanted. But then like once everything started to click and I started reading like the stuff that he assigned, I went up to them and I said, Charlie, your stuff, like the stuff that you teach is great. Holy crap. Like, it's like you care, (laughs) you know, like it was so crazy that I had all these tools initially, but like, I never really dug deep into it until, you know, I did eventually and being like, Oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. And Bogart, like the viewpoints, uh, even link later, some of it too. Like it's, it, it helped me a lot. It helped, like, besides doing Doxy's God, like, and the message behind that show, the preparation for that also changed me a lot, too. And it really is about, like, it really is thanks to, like, the mentors that we have. But uh, one thing I do like to tell my students, or I guess, like, the t- kids I'm mentoring, is that, you know, the the stuff that I'm offering you guys, it's like, it's just a key, you know? Well, it's not even a key. Like, they have the key to it's just a, it's just it's just a tool. I mean, that's that's something that I I learned is like you know, grad school undergrad. It's like you'll learn all these different techniques of acting. You'll learn all these different ways to get mm-hmm. to the end point of what you want to get to. Um, you know, when you approach a Shakespeare play, you obviously can't perform it the same way as you would a pinter. Yeah, it's um, not written that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not written that way. But you learn, as as I was told in grad school by my course director Alex Taylor. He was um, he always said, he's like, we're giving you tools that you can add to your actor's toolbox and how you use them mm-hmm. is what makes you as an artist. And we're going to throw a whole bunch mm-hmm. of different techniques that you can use as tools. And you're not going to use them all because you may never use some of them ever again, mm-hmm. but you will learn how to use them so that if you need to, mm-hmm. you can always go back. Exactly. And, use them again. and I'm very grateful for that. It's very similar. Like, to what um, Corey Balrog, the director of God of War, the video game, um, he received a message and from a fan. And the fan said, like, hey, you know, like, because of your video game, like, it helped me connect with my father. And, like, he said something that I said, like, very similar early on. It's like, like, he said that he didn't do any of that, you know? He, he, he gave him the push that he needed to, like, give him like enough like I, I can't I, i'm trying to be a philosopher right now and i can't um like he gave him the push that he needed to in order for him to talk to his dad like you can have all these tools and stuff at your disposal but depending it, it really it takes like your effort and your um willingness to actually use these tools to help you out because but i think it I, I think it goes more than that though it's that you know i i I write and I, when I, when I teach people, I tell them Mm -hmm. that you have to be willfully vulnerable because you have to come into a situation and accept that, you know, especially when you're going into a new play, you have to accept that Mm -hmm. what you're bringing to the table is important and what you're, and why you've been cast in this role is because Mm -hmm. they believe you can do the best part for it. You can do the best job for this role. 
And so going in and knowing that it's like, you just have to accept the fact that what Mm -hmm. I'm doing today is I'm going to be present. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be in the room. You know, every time I, every single day when I journal, I write at the top of the page, Mm -hmm. fail and fail big. And that's something that I have brought into every rehearsal room that I have, because to me, it's a lot of people have problems with failure because they think that it's just, it's a horrible thing. They're afraid to fail. Oh yeah. Uh, I think failing is awesome because Mm -hmm. you learn so much more about yourself. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm trying not to like keep bringing up the conversation that Nathan and I had, but, um, we kind of said this like the same thing in Charlie's class. Like he instilled that the very first thing in like directing one and even in his like acting two class about failure. And I remember just being like, is this guy insane? You know, like fail to fail. No way. No way, sir. I don't want to do that. You know? Well, but what I love about it is Mm -hmm. that it teaches you that in a rehearsal room, you should be, willing and that's why i come back to willful vulnerability because if you're not vulnerable you're really not being open to other actors on stage you're not being open to what's going on and if you're vulnerable you understand that you can fail and because rehearsals Mm -hmm. are a safe space or they should be when you fail it's not failure you haven't like it's 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 weird like when we talk about failure in theater like we talk about oh you didn't play that the right Mm -hmm. way but you still played it. And to me, that's important because you're just learning what doesn't, mm-hmm. what doesn't work in the world of the play. And so to have that, you know, self-acceptance where it's like, okay, today I'm going to go in and I'm just going mm-hmm. to try and do something. I'm going to try and be prepared. I'm going to do the best I can today. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just can't do it. You know, we try to leave our problems at the door when we go into theater, but sometimes it just can't be done. So you have to go in and you have to accept it's like, okay, here's mm-hmm. how I am today. This is how I am. Oh yeah. I wish and more actors did that instead of having to stress out about what a director thinks should be right or wrong all the time. Like just come in with as yourself as who you are. Cause that is essentially, at least when I pick uh, people, it's, uh, I know for sure they're going to pl- play the role exactly how I want it. You know, like they don't need to impress me. They already did. You're here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got the part. You got the part. So just, you know, you don't have to continue yeah. to impress people. You just have to play it. And it, it, you know, it's, it's being, you know, I, I always tell my friends that aren't in theater, I'm, they're like, well, how do you, how do you do what you do? And I was like, you know, the only thing about acting is that when you learn to act, mm-hmm. you're learning how to not act. I was like, it's the difficult thing is like when you put, it's weird. I, I keep going back to like when you're a kid, it's like when you're a kid, mm-hmm. you have no problems playing anything. You can, you know, people, someone come up, okay, I'm a doctor mm-hmm. and you're my patient and let's go. That's what it is. But when you go and you, and you find it interesting, you can see when adults start watching kids, like when they're playing, like when parents start watching mm-hmm. kids, kids start acting differently. They start to put on a show. And so, oh, there's some biking That's by fine. with a speaker going. Um, you learn, you learn that uh, you learn <laughs> that acting is just the art of not acting. It's being present on stage and listening to your fellow actors, and it's 
it's just listening and responding. And it can be difficult to learn that because it really is, you know, people, when they get up on stage, they think, well, I have to put on a show. And it's like, yeah, but if you're trying mm -hmm. to put on a show, exactly. you're not actually acting. Mm -hmm. you're yeah, I totally agree with that. And to go back on a point that you made earlier, um, Troy Baker, another video game actor, very well known um, in that sphere. He was in The Last of Us, which, you know, it's one of the best games on the PS, the PlayStation ecosystem again video games i don't know if you've played too many or, or not but he's a prolific actor and one of the best in the business um he got cast to play the joker in one of the batman video games and mark hamill has been playing the joker even in the video games for such a long time oh yeah and especially in this series yeah, for so uh, of long. batman games so, uh, which have been very well received it's the arkham games and yeah, and so Troy Baker oh, was the, the Joker games. in one of the origin stories. And Troy almost said, like, no, like, he doesn't want to play the Joker, even though he got cast as a Joker. And this is, like, this is a guy coming from The Last of Us. Like, he's a, he knows what he's doing, but, like, he was trepidatious about doing this role because it's so important. And the director pretty much came up to him, or one of the creative team, and went up to him and was like, look, we picked you for this uh, video game. We know you can do it. What gives you the right to say that uh, we made the wrong choice? You know? Exactly. It's, it's, it's like uh, there's the, um, I don't know if it's on Prime. I think it's on Prime. Um, oh. There's the Carol Spinney documentary. I love that. Documentary. Yeah, I love Carol that documentary. Carol Spinney was uh, Big Bird. And, it, you know, it, they interview the people who are mm -hmm. his understudies and they talk about how they have to recreate this role but they have to make it their own in the same way and it's just so interesting to me to listen to because mm -hmm. i mean big bird is an iconic <laughs> character <laughs> and so it just talks about how you have to take what's yeah. been done but you i have think to that's make what broadway own. actors have a lot of that's a lot to do too because uh, at least like the the commercial broadway show like uh lion king really hasn't been changed that much uh, from when it was produced back in the 90s. But uh, there has been so many iterations of The Lion King. And uh, so a lot of people have seen that show. Uh, so I guess it is a mixture of like trying to figure out um, what has already been established, but also make it your own. And I was blessed to see Lion King here in Spokane uh, when it came here like twice. Uh, and I saw two different versions of Rafigi. And they were the exact same, you know, like they essentially were the same character. But I noticed like each Rafiki had brought like different um, energy to the character. Whereas like I thought they were both great. I, I could uh, honestly say like I liked one more than the other, even though they were playing the exact same character. Because I know what made each character kind of different for that actor, which was like interesting. No, I... It, it's. It, I agree with you because uh, when I were when mm -hmm. I was in Boise, I worked at the Morrison Center for Performing Arts um, as a stagehand, and I was able to work. Oh. Uh, I worked Wicked the first time I came <laughs> through, so I was able to see it sixteen different times. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of Wicked. Um, but they were training. Um, they were training someone who was taking over for mm -hmm. either Glinda or Elphaba, and um, just. And we had to be there because, you know, all the stage, all the all the people who are on the show crew, the running crew, 
had to be there so that if there was, you know, they wanted to run a scene, we were there so we could do it, so we could do all the props and everything moving for it. I mean, I was on the electrics team, so I was on uh, stage mm -hmm. left for the electrics for that, the deck electric on stage left. Um, and um, it was so interesting to watch because, you know, they talk about the tracks of the, uh, of the character. And so the blocking and everything is very much the same, but how it's played mm -hmm. is inherently upon the actor and how they want to play it. I mean, they obviously have to, you know, if you're singing the songs, you can't mess with the rhythm and the tempo of the songs, but how you execute the songs mm -hmm. is how you as an actor want to do it. And so it was really cool to be able to watch those rehearsals and say, oh, okay, so this is how they train people and how they rehearse people to take over these roles on mm -hmm. these tours and on these Broadway shows. Yeah, it's Broadway is really interesting, man. I mean, we spoke to... Uh, when Lion King was in town, like we had the actor who played Zazu on uh, come to Gonzaga and talk about that experience. And I think I asked the same question, like, you know, like directing uh, a Broadway musical, which is essentially, you know, commercial th uh, Broadway. Like, how do you, how does that work for a director of that show? <laughs> you know, like, how do you, uh, you know, we always talk about like yeah. directors having their own voices and stuff, but with a show like the Lion King, like you really can't change too much. Like, uh, so it was really interesting to hear how, how they bring stuff to the table. Um, I don't know if I would want to work in Broadway, though, unless it's my show, you know, like if I, if I if, obviously I'll direct my own show <laughs> on Broadway, but I don't think I could take over somebody else's uh, project. Like, um, why can't I remember the person who made The Lion King? Um, uh, Julie what, yeah, Julie I don't think I can take Julie over Taymor, Julie Taymor's show, you know, yeah. like that's her show. So I, I, I enjoy like making my own stuff. Um, going back to Anne and the lessons you learned from her and then coming back to Spokane, uh, where it kind of all began. Well, not really. I guess it began. Well, I guess. Yeah, you did. Yeah, it so, did begin here. I started acting what? here in Spokane. Yeah. Do you hope to change about the uh, like, what do you think changed like from the first time you came here, what do you think is different now? And then what do you think you can, what, what do you want to bring to the, t the theater table here in Spokane now that you have all this experience? Oh, okay. Let's think. Uh, when I was first seeing shows here in Spokane, I mean, I remember the first show I saw. It was, uh, it was Peter Pan and it was at a, what is mm -hmm. the Bing Crosby now, but it was the Met Theater, mm -hmm. and it was local actor Patrick Treadway, and uh, I remember, I, I remember, I, I, I finally, I'm now friends with him, and I, uh, I remember going up to him mm -hmm. like the first time I met him at New Year's this past year, this year actually, and I remember telling him I was mm -hmm. like, "You're the reason I went into acting." And I was like, because I remember going up, I, I got all the autographs. I used to go to all the Spokane Children's Theater shows and all the, uh, I used to go to all of them. I, I mean, I remember, I just used to go to all of them. But this one stuck out because I remember him in the lobby and I, because he played Captain Hook in this production. And I remember just crying because I couldn't get Arthur oh. Darling's autograph. And he came up to me and he goes, why are you crying? And I was like, well, I want Arthur Darling's autograph. And he whispered in my ear, he goes, I also played Arthur Darling. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. And then uh, the magic of theater just, it, it just like sparked mm -hmm. in me this interest. And I just started acting from a young age. 
And then, you know, going on into high school and performing at prep and doing shows. And then, you know, I never did any civic theater shows um, or Spokane children's theater shows in Spokane because I was always doing shows at prep. And then, you know, so the first show I did here in Spokane Mm-hmm. that wasn't at prep really that long three penny opera yeah that long yeah i was 27 was the as how old i was the first time i did a show in in spokane that wasn't oh, at wow. that's an crazy academic i mean how old are you now 28 so it was just you know because my first show mm-hmm. was just back uh in november here in spokane um but, you know, I, I see how it's mm-hmm. changed. One, there's more theaters here in Spokane now. Um, so that's great that there's more places where people could perform. Um, but I don't really know. I think, you know, I just, I'm a big supporter of just, you know, mm-hmm. actors need to learn that we're storytellers. And our job is to tell the story as the as best as we can. And I think I've tried mm. to bring that here to Spokane. Is that when I get cast in a show, uh, when I direct a show, it's really just what is the story that we're telling? And what is the best way we can tell this story? Because inherently, if you can't tell the story, Mm-hmm. then you can't do the job. And so I try to bring that in every role that I do here in Spokane. And whenever I direct a show, I just think about what's the best way we can tell the story. And, you know, just having a professionalism, a professional attitude when you go into a show, you know, I, I, I'll bring up again, to be early is to mm-hmm. be on time, to be on time is to be late, to be late is unacceptable, you know? You don't have to be just, not, you, it's not just about showing up on time uh, and being there early. It's being there and ready mm-hmm. to go and have done your work. And, you know, I've only done a few shows in Spokane, so I can't speak to how people are here because the shows I've seen here, I've enjoyed. I really have enjoyed. And it's, you know, Spokane is a very talented city when it comes to theater. You know, we've got the three universities, Whitworth, GU, and Eastern, that put on fantastic shows. And then we have them, you know, we have these students and these these artists feeding into Spokane Stage Left, into Spokane Civic Theater, um, Ignite Theater uh, for their stage readings. So it's like people are finally, as I'm seeing it now, and maybe it's that it was always there. And maybe that's the thing, is that through my training, I've realized this is the type of artist I'd like to be. And this is the type of artist I'd like to help other people be if they want to. But for me, it's really just, it comes down to the, the simple thing of just listening and responding. You know, it's a lot of actors will just memorize their lines. That's all they'll do. They'll just, and, and you know, they learn by waiting for the pause before they speak. You know, obviously when someone's done speaking, that's when they start speaking. But if you learn to memorize your cue line too, you're not just 
waiting for them to finish speaking. You're actively listening for that line. And it's more interesting to watch on stage because not only are you really listening and responding, but you're actively listening. And so it looks like, and you are doing something on stage. You're filling the void that's there. You're not just waiting for your time to speak. You're, you're mm -hmm. actually acting. You're playing that part. And that's something that I hope to bring with every role that I do. You know, I really just like, I, I listen to what's being said mm -hmm. and then I respond. Yeah, I feel like that's said. what we need in life nowadays. Like not just in theater, but like with everything that's going on in the world, uh, I feel like the world would be a better place if we just listen to each other instead of worrying about our own selfish agendas, you know? Um, yeah, active listening, uh, great times. No. No, I agree with that because it really is. It's one of those things where it's like to be a better actor, mm -hmm. you have to be a better human. You really do because everything you do on stage are things that you should be doing in real life. You should be actively listening to people and have a conversation with them. Don't just wait to say your point. Really mm -hmm. listen to what exactly. Are and you know, like for me anyway, I've only been in Spokane about six, uh, seven years right now, and uh, I've seen a lot of like what all the theaters are doing and you know like you get your infighting and you know there's a couple of things that i don't really agree with like um one big thing i talked about on the show is <laughs> the academy and how the uh, spokane civic theater academy shows while they're great for students i just feel like the pricing sometimes can be a little bit high and uh, that's <laughs> i've seen like the pricing i'm like as a as a poor person who came from a poor family like that's it's a lot of money, <laughs> but overall, I still think um, Spokane has a really cool art, but, theater art scene here, and uh, I think it's only getting better and better. Mm -hmm. We do, and we're fortunate that we do. I mean, you know, what you just said reminded me of what, um, you know, uh, Christopher Eccleston uh, says over in the UK. He, he's ta he talks about how he, he, he's, he's had an interview, mm -hmm. I think it was with uh, BBC Radio 1, um, and he talked about how the arts need to be more inclusive because, I mean, if you look at it, there are a lot of people who can't mm -hmm. afford to do theater because it costs so much. And we're missing out on having so many fantastic artists because they can't afford to get training or they can't afford to be a part of something. And so if you make theater more accessible, to people then you mm -hmm. actually a hundred percent um i always said that you know i we're in theater but at the end of the day like in just the uh and you know like it's not true once you get into the nitty-gritty of it but like on the surface level and the on the accessibility side theater's an elite elitist art you know it is mm -hmm, which it's sad it because the it way really i've is. been taught theater the way you've been taught theater like that doesn't have to be the case, you know, like there, you can do theater anyway, shape or form. It doesn't have to, like, it's not this Broadway image, you know, like, I, I don't know, like it's, it, it always bugs me because I'm always for like, yeah, voices and all that. But I work in this industry that is very elitist, com even compared to like film and music, which I feel like you can pick those up really easy and like, especially film you know, you got your iPhone, like those are, those are eligible, like legible yeah. or whatever, like the, like those are fine to use as cameras. 
you know theater it's like it's well i think we're still trying to figure out like how the heck to do it <laughs> i mean uh when i did uh when i did the ity tour mm -hmm. through uh idaho shakespeare festival um one of the things that the costume designer darren Proofall wanted to do was because this was for middle school and uh, mm -hmm. it was for elementary and middle school kids and the costumes were made out of I mean uh, they were very very great costumes but they were made out of mm -hmm. you know found items and so it was to and so I mean my costume was a world map uh, I played Armin, one of Shakespeare's company members, um, one of the King's men, uh, the or Lord Chamberlain's men. Um, and my main outfit for Armin was a world map. And I had a ruff that was made out of, uh, it was supposed to be made out of newspaper. Um, and then my belt was like old fashioned clothes pins that they used to pin on the clothing lines. And it was, and it wasn't until, you know, it was a couple weeks into the tour when one of the parents that was there with their kids to see it actually asked, why did they do that? And the reason was because he wanted to show the kids that even you can put on a play and you can do it by things that you have around you. You don't have to have any fancy costumes. You don't have to have anything of great value. You literally can make your own costumes with what you have around you. Yeah, and you can uh, going back to the Lion King uh, when you mentioned that, like doing uh, plays by yourself. Um, the Zazu actor, when I when he I think he was asked like, how much does that, does that Zazu puppet cost? And he was like, oh, it's probably like a five thousand, twelve thousand dollar puppet. And I, in my mind, I just like my anxiety yeah. went up because if I was the Zazu actor, I would be scared to play with that thing it's like ooh, that is a very expensive toy and i remember i i took a tour backstage and i put my hands in my pocket i was like i don't want to even leave a fingerprint because in case mickey mouse come knocking on my door and eat the shit out of me for ruining the lion king or something like it's it's kind of it's kind of scary but no i i do agree with you like like we literally did a reflection in a bar you know um I spoke to Patty Tully. Shout out to Patty. I love yeah. her. Um, we had already collaborated when we did Doxy's God and we did like a photo shoot in there. And I was like, hey, this is crazy, but I want to do a play in your bar and I'm willing to like rent it out if you let us do it. And she was like, no, I actually like that idea. You, do, you get to do it for free. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we'll do it for free then. Because uh, I guess like she'll, she'll get customers into, the, into, that, into that place. And yeah, we just... We had nothing. There was no budget for this show. Like Art wrote the play, and I just told him, Art, can like I know you need your work to be produced, and I need to direct. <laughs> so like we need. Uh, I want to direct your show, and he just gave it to me. He said, "Don't even have to pay me for the rights. It's your birthday present." Because uh, I asked him around my birthday, and so <laughs> we did that show, and it cost us nothing. I mean, like probably like a few dollars here and there to like get stuff, but it was super easy to put up and even patty said like once we left um she had a very bad experience in the bar with other people because it was a bar so it was open late but she said like our show was her the best time that she had and it was probably like the most professional 
that she's seen like you know she's seen people uh do shows in her bar and need a burrito but like we were the most professional even though we had no experience you know and it was really good to have that feeling and i that's why i encourage so many people to like do their own work you know we had emma york on the show the very first episode and she was really enthusiastic about doing plays in her backyard because of like COVID and everything. And I was like, what's stopping you from doing it? Just do it. You know? And she ended up doing all these uh, backyard. Well, she hasn't done any of them uh, because of COVID, but she was gearing up to do them and she was very excited about it. I hope she still is. Cause it looked like it was a cool idea. Um, but yeah, theater doesn't have to be like this elite thing um which it's sadly like categorized like that and that's why like a lot of people don't really feel like they can get into it i feel like well that's how i feel about shakespeare is like people mm -hmm. treat shakespeare as this academic powerhouse and this elitist thing and, the, and he's hard to get into but i mean mm -hmm. you know shakespeare wrote for the common man of his time and so you know we we hold shakespeare in this reverence which you know, I'm all for mm -hmm. because I love Shakespeare's writing and his plays. But, you know, one of the best performances I saw, I saw, uh, I saw many in the UK, but there are two that stick out to me. Um, I had the opportunity to go see mm -hmm. an evening of guerrilla theater in, or guerrilla Shakespeare, as they sort of mm -hmm. called it, through the Globe Theater in London. And Sir Mark Rylance uh, and Emma Rice were the main before Emma Rice left as the artistic director at uh, the Globe, they did this um, this evening of scenes and monologues and sonnets in Westminster Abbey. And you didn't know who the actors were until they just started performing. It's like they had people dressed up as the stewards inside of Westminster Abbey um, and I remember when someone came up to me and started talking to me and then out of nowhere just started doing, we saw it at 116. Uh, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Um, and then, you know, walking around, all of a sudden this guy ran up to me and he goes, I need your help, I need your help. And then all of a sudden it was the uh, Henry V speech, the, the governor of Harfleur speech where he was trying to convince the governor of Harfleur to open up his gates mm -hmm. so that nobody more, 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 no more people would be killed. And then that was the eve. I saw the evening performance of that. And then the next day, I went and did um, a sonnet walk. And uh, I was able to, again, just walking along this route with a group of people. And all of a sudden, someone would just start performing a sonnet. And it was beautiful because mm -hmm. it made you realize theater can be performed yeah, anywhere. Yeah, that's. I love guerrilla theater. I, I don't see too much. Uh, I don't see too much of it. I guess, you I know, reflection. I guess was guerrilla. You know, like I guess a lot of people who were coming into the bar never really expected a play to be done here. <laughs> um, we were doing a like a tech rehearsal the same night we were um, going to perform, and these two couples just come in to the bar because it's it was open when we did it, and you know how small the baby bar is. So oh, I, yeah, and so these couple were being oh, loud. Yeah. But like we we didn't tell them to be quiet because this is a bar and my condition with Patty was like we're not gonna inter interrupt the flow of your bar like if something happens in this bar the actors are going to react to that you know mm -hmm. 
and respond so, uh, to and even it. If, yeah. like even if the play doesn't really call for that necessarily because it was supposed to be taking place both in like a therapy session and then in a kitchen like there was a cool transition that we made but um like it's gonna happen and then like you also have like the audience who are gonna see it that are like two feet in front of you <laughs> you know and, and like with that mirror and everything like they're they are all around mm-hmm. you. it's almost like in the rounds because of that giant mirror there so um i don't know that oh, yeah. experience was like dope um i'm very i i'm sincerely very proud of what <laughs> we were able to accomplish with that yeah yeah because i remember you like i was applying well, well i applied to direct a show at the civic theater and Jake uh, Schaefer, shout out to Jake. I love him. Uh, he read my, uh, well, eventually he read my proposal. I think at the time I was also preparing for the Baby Bar Project, which I called it that at the time. Uh, and then being really more excited about that than directing whatever show at the Civic. <laughs> and then Jake eventually emailed me and uh, he was like, yeah, your pr- proposal is really engaging, but uh, you don't have the experience yet to um, put on the sh- to direct the show and in my head i was like you know i get that but i know i i think i can direct the show you know i'm gonna do it anyway and so that's where the baby bar project came in because i didn't want to wait around for people to tell me that i can and can direct you know oh yeah no i get that i'm fortunate Mm -hmm. enough that i'll be directing rhinoceros for stage left if it still goes on next summer um fingers crossed i really hope that stage left that'll be fun I do too. I mean, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll happen eventually. It's one of those things where it's oh, like, yeah. you know, the safety yeah. of the public wish, is uh, important right now. I wish other theater companies realized that, but you know, this podcast isn't about throwing shade. <laughs> um, Robert, um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you like one question that I always ask uh, uh, the friends of the show here. Um, pretend Anne is kind of like manifested in front of us today. Um, what's one thing you want to tell her right now? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, it, it, you know, I'm sure a lot of people say that, but it, it is, it's one of those things where mm-hmm. I can never thank her enough. She instilled in me the idea mm-hmm. that I can do what I want mm-hmm. within, you know, limits, obviously, but it is, and where, you know, she just helped me mm-hmm. so much vocally. And I don't think, I don't think I can ever, mm-hmm. ever pay her back for that. In a, in a sense, you know, I just keep trying to do the best that I can mm-hmm. in theater because of the people that talk. Yeah. You say pay her. Oh yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry. I didn't know you. And yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just, I'm just, I'm literally just trying to think about it because it really is one of those things where it's like, I, I would almost be speechless because it's like the way she helped me just understanding how to speak Shakespeare, understanding, you know, Hey, here's how you break down speeches. Here's how you look at just text. And I mean, I remember going through and one of the first operative word scoring exercises we had mm-hmm. was to score the entirety of the Lorax and then perform it. And it's things that are so simple, really, that actors just take for granted being able to do. Mm-hmm. But just being able to do it 
and just being trained so well by her from it. It's just like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, you just, I just couldn't thank her enough. And that's why I just try to do the best performance I can every single time, because I want to, I want to show my mentors and my tutors that mm-hmm. really they inspired mm-hmm. me to be better at my craft. Yeah. Um, if I may make an assumption about Anne, cause when you said that, uh, you don't know how to thank them. I think like you don't really need to because like um, you're doing exactly what they taught you, you know, like you're out there, you're, you're doing exactly what they wanted out of you. And that's what they want. You know, speaking from my experience as a mentor, maybe you can relate to like um, whenever I see like Georgia, my apprentice, like actually enjoy the thing that I've given her, like, here's Anne Bogart. I know this is a text that you won't even learn until you get into, like, your third year at college because it's so dense. But, like, here are you right now. You're 16, and you're enjoying this, and, like, you are taking something out of it. Like, you're taking out of something in general <laughs> that I'm, le- like, teaching you right now because it affected me so much, and I wanted to share that with you. Like, that's all I really want, you know, and to see them flourish and to see them do their own thing, it's like, that's, that's repayment for me. Like, um, if you, I, I bet if you just like threw away what Anne said and like didn't take it into consideration, like she wouldn't even be mad. She'd just be like, ah, oh, whatever, it's just another student is gone. But I'm sure she, she, she totally appreciates what you're doing now. And I do, you know, I, I really admire even the, like the small talk that we have we haven't really like met each other in public well we have two times <laughs> we have but it's just you know but it's been a yeah while but like can't really even right meeting you and COVID, so. hearing how enthusiastic about theater you are and even like some of the changes that you want to make in the community it's like yes i'm glad there's someone like you here and i'm sure Anne thinks the same way well i would hope so and i hope that it's one of those things where it's like i can i can sit down with my mentors one day and just tell them that uh, I, I hope I'm I've sure made you them did. proud. And you should share it with sense. Anne and maybe then she'll, she'll speak for herself. <laughs> She's like, mm, I don't know, Robert, uh, this <laughs> <in> this podcast. <laughs> you screwed it up, man. <laughs> she'll probably tell me you pronounced yeah. the name of Camus wrong. All right. like, yeah, probably. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, <laughs> this is Wayward Artists in the Wayward World. We are in the lightning round questions. It's a series of five questions that I ask each and every guest each and every Sunday. Um, sometimes they know what the questions are. Sometimes they don't. And in this case, Robert doesn't know what they are. So I'm very excited to uh, tell him what they are. Uh, Robert, are you excited? Are you ready? I am very All right. excited. Question I, number I, one. I think I'm what ready. Would be your yes, perfect I think day? I'm ready. Oh, well, I mean, I could quote Miss Congeniality if uh. I really wanted to. Um, I won't. But I think it would have to be, mm-hmm. honestly, I love theater so much. I do. I love it. Mm-hmm. But my perfect day has nothing to do with theater. It would really just be going to my family's lake cabin, sitting on the beach, reading, 
and being able to have a fire on the beach and just relaxing. It's, you know, I, I do so much in theater and I've always tried to tell people that you can live mm -hmm. in what you want to do your whole life, but you need to have mm -hmm. a break. You need to take breaks for yourself. And so my perfect day would be something where I could just sit and be with my dog and my family and just relax and not have to worry about what show I'm doing next or what performance was like, what, you know, what am, am I ready for rehearsal tomorrow or later today? And it's just, mm -hmm. it can get stressful. And so just being able to really check out mm -hmm. and relax and check in with myself. That would be my perfect day. And I do that a lot now. I do it quite frequently because I understand that really you have to, you have to have breaks. Otherwise, you yeah, yourself especially out. with COVID and everything. Um, one thing that Charlie said in a live stream, he said, uh, now's the, like what him and his students are doing uh, for directing this year is like, it's preparation, you know, like, and they're being prepared by reading things mm -hmm. and uh, diving into theory a lot uh, until the day we can s see each other again. And I feel like when with preparation comes also self-reflection um, with this podcast, like I mentioned before, like it was a way for me to go back, recess back into why I love doing theater exactly. And why I do directing specifically and figuring what that was again, and then trying to figure out, all right, so how are you going to do that without theater <laughs> in the picture? Like, how are you going to achieve your mission statement without theater? And this podcast has been it, man. Like, we had so many amazing guests. Yeah, we had so many amazing guests on the show. And I, and I, think, I think that's what you have to do now, you know. Theater in the time of what's going on right now has changed. You know, I've been mm -hmm. having a lot of rehearsals and performances over Zoom. Um, you know, uh, I'm editing plays for friends. I'm, uh, you know, mm -hmm. just yeah. trying not to go yeah. crazy <laughs> while being home. And, and it, it's, it's, it's shifting your mindset to being like, you're still working. You're still doing what you want to do in your field. It's just mm -hmm. change. The media It'll be interesting to see right what now. this podcast is like once COVID's over. Because, yeah, every single guest that's been on here has been live, um, like on like streaming, like this phone call setup. So uh, who knows? Maybe I'll invest in this more. Um, and then before we get into number two, like, uh, <laughs> one friend, Josh Castile, shout out to Josh. He was on the Broadway revival of Spring Awakening. He said his perfect day would be going to rehearsal, like for te like in tech rehearsal and all that. And I'm like, are you? Uh, that's I I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> oh God, I like hate maybe he didn't say tech. tech I, I should I should listen I to his them. episode when it comes out. But like he said, rehearsal, like going to rehearsal, and I'm like. Man, I don't know if I like would consider that myself as a perfect day, but hey, you know, to each their own. <laughs> uh, question number two: What's your third favorite movie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, third favorite movie. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I have such a mix of movies that I like. I mean, the ones that I I always go back to. There's this. Uh, mm -hmm. I can tell you my top three that I always watch. Um, 
always Ooh. one of my go-tos I always love to watch is Silence of the Lambs. I love that movie. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins is brilliant in that movie. Um, my number two, uh, just for fun for me, would probably have to be uh, just one of the Harry Potter movies. I always go back and watch those. They're my go-tos. Um, but I think the third one I watch is not even really a, it, it's a documentary. It's, um, it's, uh-huh. it's on Gore Vidal, who's one of my favorite writers. And um, it's, it's, I think it's called the United States of mm-hmm. Vidal or something like or Gore versus the United States. And it's, um, and I love it because it just kind of shows his progression as a writer as a writing, not only for, you know, his novels that he wrote, but writing his teleplays and his plays. And it's just like, you know, I say that my perfect day would be without theater, but you know, then I go back and I watch like my third favorite movie would have to be that Gore Vidal documentary because it really is about him. And you see him as Mm -hmm. the human that he is. Yeah. I love documentaries like that. Like I, I'm always like, I always like wrapping myself around it. Like, you know, the Disney Imagineer documentary uh, on Disney Plus. Yeah, oh, and just that learning is about so the process. Good. I just so love good. learning about other people's process because like for a second, like I I get to see the human being in, in people a little bit because like you see all this cool stuff and you're like, oh man, I don't think I could ever like accomplish what you're doing. But then they go down and you're like, here's my path. Here's how I got to where I am. And I'm like, Oh, it's very similar to my direction right now. That's why I love Anne Bogart so much and reading a director's a director prepares. Like she is very honest about her experience and what she had to go through to get to where she is and how she thinks. And she doesn't necessarily hold this like elitism about theater. Like she uh, she's always looking to change. And in fact, oh I, okay, no, never mind. I'm not gonna say what she told me in the email. I don't even want to say it. <laughs> Wait, okay, no. yeah, save yeah. it. I, wait, wait till you get you her. You know, um, I hope she wait till you get her accept on. next time because <laughs> we did email her and she's very sweet. Um, but she has a lot going on, especially being the uh, the director like she she teaches at the Columbia University, so she, yeah, she she's got a lot on her plate, let's just say. Yep. Uh, so I understand. I mean, I I know, like, it's weird because I find myself, like, I I love film. I love watching movies, but I've really been watching more television series lately, and I have for the past few years, and I think it's because a lot of TV now is following, it, it, it's not like, you know, 90s and 2000s sitcoms and, um, you know, Friends, Frasier, it's... Uh, you know, uh, uh, cheers, like, you know, you, TV is beginning to really tell stories. Uh, I just last week finished mm-hmm. watching, oh, yeah. uh, Watchmen on HBO and, you know, mm-hmm. I love HBO because they just push boundaries. They just always have, but just seeing growth of characters mm-hmm. over time, it's like watching a play. And for me, you get that in film. You really do get that in film. But in TV, it expands it so much more because instead of doing it over an hour, 
you know, and a half to a three hour movie, they're doing it over 13 to 26 mm-hmm. episodes a season. Yeah, I appreciate short form TV shows, though, like um, eight, eight seasons and stuff. Well, I guess with COVID, <laughs> you have time. You could you could watch eight seasons of a TV show. But um, I like short sh- uh, TV shows like the a Watchmen I know is pretty short. Um Yeah, yeah and there was also episode, like a Netflix like the binging stuff. Like I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I mean, I just started ooh. watching on Disney Plus Muppets now. I love the Muppets, and so I, I love. I'm happy that they're releasing it an episode a week because I, I would have to force myself to watch an episode like once a day. Otherwise, I would just mm-hmm. sit there and watch the. It's kind of bittersweet, of the and uh, like it's. I, I appreciate like. I appreciate having all the episodes, but it's bittersweet when you go through it in a day. <laughs> it is. I mean, I just, uh, at the beginning of, you know, the pandemic, I rewatched the entirety of Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, man. And I forgot how much I loved that show. I mean, I always knew I loved it, but then I went back and really, you know, watching it when it was airing was different than watching it now. As like, especially with all my training, I look back and I'm like, they really told stories. The growth of those characters. Mm-hmm. Too bad it was on Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, question number three, and we, we need to uh, hurry it up before Anchor kicks us off. Um, how how would I describe you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you describe me? Oh mm-hmm. well, I was always taught to never think about what other people think of you. Um, I don't know. I think you've stumped me on that yeah. question, and I like to talk. You know that I like yeah. to talk. Uh, I don't know how you would describe me. Um, I mean, I think other people describe me as uh, gregarious, outgoing, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also very quiet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll sit in a room and I'll watch people. I love people watching. I love going to a park and people watching. And I, it's like whenever I go to a show, I don't, you know, I, I. I I love saying is like, you know, theater is just the art of stealing something and making it your own Um, because that's all it is. It's like you, you mimic what's going on and what other people are doing. So I don't know. I think I, I think you'd probably describe me as observant. Yeah. Those last two for sure. Uh, Gregacious. I don't even know what that word is. So I don't think I would uh, describe you as gregarious. Yeah. Whatever. No, gregarious. Um, you're also like I really enjoy talking with you because like I, I don't know maybe this, this doesn't sound like maybe that great, but like you are very smart, and I really enjoy talking with you and learning from you. Um, you're also a really good actor. I really enjoy your work. I've enjoyed all your stuff that I've seen. Um, but then getting to know you, you're also very kind. You know, like you have a really good heart. It seems, and I wish I got to know more about uh, no, more. I wish I got to know more of you uh, this year, but with this pandemic, we can only really talk on the phone. <laughs> oh yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking. We're here. But we're talking. <laughs> All right. Question number four. What's your favorite <laughs> ice cream topping? Ooh. Okay. So full disclosure, uh, my favorite ice cream uh, in the entire world. Uh, Robert, I, well, I don't two. mean to so disturb uh, your answer, but we do have one minute left before Zoom. Like this. Yeah. 
Sprinkles. Rainbow or sprinkles. Rainbow it's or sprinkles. sprinkles. It's sprinkles. It's sprinkles. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Gay no, absolutely gay flag, rainbow. Um, absolutely rainbow. Question yeah. number five. And the last question, the most important one. Left Twix or right Twix? <laughs> oh right. Right Ooh, Twix. Um not a lot of right people Twix. pick right, but they sure pick left a lot, which I wonder what that says about other people. But Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, we only have 20 seconds before Anchor kicks us off. Um, Tom, uh, sorry, I was going to, oh my God, I was going to call you Tom Bombardi. <laughs> Robert, um, any last words? Hi, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Um, looks like we uh, Anchor did kick us off. Uh, <laughs> and... Well, we were just about to end it. We were very close. We made it towards the finish line, but um, I appreciated having Robert on. It was a fun time. It was an amazing time, as always, with all our guests. Um, but yeah, I do love Anchor, though, even though they do sponsor this episode. So um, I just wish we could record more. But, you know, I think having a limit is great, you know, condenses everything. Um, tune in next Sunday for the next guest. Uh, I'm not really sure who's going to be next uh, as of recording this, but when I do, you will know in the description who's going to be the next guest for the next week. Uh, until then, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, it's been real. Yeah.